Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi there. My name is Rachel Lipstein, and I'm a research assistant at the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm in the studio today with energy environmental journalist Kate Galbraith. Kate has written for the Texas Tribune, the New York Times, and The Economist. She is the co-author of the recently released The Great Texas Wind Rush, a book about how the oil and gas state won the race to wind power. Kate, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So The Great Texas Wind Rush carries high praise for the grit and ingenuity of the hardy autodidact tinkerer, this Texas archetype you, that you build. And chapter 2 is named for it. I was wondering how you developed this tinkerer motif, and was it something that you actually encountered in people that you met, or a more widely recognized figure in the Texan imagination? Well, as we started to research the book, uh, my co-author, Asher Price, and I realized that, I mean, we started out with this idea that, hey, Texas is the number one wind power state, but it's also an oil and gas state, and so how did it come to be that way? And as we started to research it, we realized that uh, this is much of the story of the times. It was also a story of people. And it's one thing that in Texas, to be a journalist in Texas, you realize very quickly that it's so much fun to talk to people, um, individual Texans. Like, I'd always rather talk to a Texas rancher than you know, some uh, guy, CEO in a suit in New York, um, just because Texas ranchers are more colorful people. And so as we went along, we found a lot of colorful characters in this book who um, separately and sometimes collaboratively had been just kind of stirring around during the 1970s energy crisis when everyone thought uh, oil oil was running out, gas prices were really high, and, and they just started stirring around with some uh, technology that had been uh, folks had tinkered around with a century before, but it sort of went out of style with... Uh, when central electricity came in. And so, yes, there is some, because Texas is this kind of far-flung rural state, we definitely encountered folks who had just been kind of backyard tinkerers back in the day. Yeah. And I'm also fascinated by a lot of the reporting and characterization of people long dead. Um, How did you get inside the heads of 19th century settlers? Well, it was one thing that one of our main characters said to us right off the bat, Michael Osborne, he built the first wind farm in Texas in the very windy Texas panhandle in 1901, the, quote, second wind farm in the known universe, or, uh, <laughs> as he as he described it. And you know, he said to us very early on, you know, it was the water windmills that uh, settled the West. And what he meant by that was that, you know, the plain states, if you drive across them, they're, they're super, super dry. And so... How was it that people were actually able to settle in these forbidding areas? And the answer was uh, the water windmills, those kind of whirly gigs you'll see in rural parts of the plains. And so that really just showed that the that that technology started uh, spreading into the plains in the mid 19th century. And so that technology was was very much there and and very much being being developed by, by folks, and then it turned into, started turning into electric power 
uh, experiments going on late 19th century and then really started to uh, get going in the um, time after World War One before World War Two. Sure. Yeah, I mean, one of the first tasks of your book, it seems, is to expose that electricity producing wind power is nearly as old as electricity itself. And what do we gain by examining the historical context of contemporary policy issues, do you think? Well, it's really interesting to me how closely uh, tied electric power and the type of electric power is with, you know, particular human needs and also with prices, with economics. I mean, as you as you said, uh, this uh, wind power was people were trying to figure out how to turn wind power into electricity. And in the late 19th century and early 20th, even uh, Thomas Edison sort of had this idea. I think he more stuck with uh, uh, the coal type experiments and and uh, other aspects of electricity. But folks, you know, really had this idea, and it was driven by, I mean, human needs kind of power themselves, rural ranchers started using electric turbines individually in their uh, uh, ranches once they realized that electricity was possible. Sort of, again, we're talking interwar period, um, uh, close to a century ago. Uh, electricity was possible, but it wasn't centralized. Electricity wasn't available to them uh, before the, the 40s. And then, you know, then in the 70s, you have very much a price-driven resurgence of this interest in wind-powered electricity when energy prices started soaring. So it's, you know, the, the incentives that people have are, are very much aligned with the ins and outs of the technology. Yeah. I mean, that, that intersectionality comes up uh, in this passage about uh, the disappearance of a mega wind farm in, in Pampa, is it, Texas? And the reasons given by the man behind it was that natural gas prices had dropped too low for a wind farm to be viable. And so could you describe a little more how those markets intersect and, and in ways that may not be obvious to uh, lay people? Sure. I think what you're talking about there is, is T. Boone Pickens, who yeah. is uh, the uh, wonderfully named uh, oil billionaire who lives in the Texas panhandle, has um, uh, uh, an Oklahoman, uh, and he, in 2008, sort of went around uh, proclaiming that he had a solution to America's sort of energy dependence, the Pickens plan. He was going to use a lot of wind power for electricity and shift natural gas into automobiles, or somewhat self-interested because he's got some natural gas, and he quickly um, declared he would build the biggest wind farm in the country in Texas Panhandle, and uh, uh, oddly enough, right in the place where, you know, in 1981, the second wind farm in the country uh, went in, uh, just five little spindly turbines built by this fellow I mentioned before, Michael Osborne. Anyway, Pickens had this idea in 2008 that was when natural gas prices were maybe uh, uh, three times uh, what they are now, and then gas prices dropped, and so that made wind power, you know, alternative to natural gas, less compelling. And gas prices dropped, of course, as the hydraulic fracturing or fracking technology spread. And and you know, for whatever reason, folks didn't foresee that becoming so big so fast. And so once gas prices dropped, the 
uh, incentives for wind power um, also also fell, and that's been a big impact for wind uh, economic viability. Wind is, of course, still still growing, but gas prices were higher; it grow faster. That makes sense. And in your chapter on Ann Richards, the former governor of Texas, you describe a crisis of quote crisis of psyche in big hair, oil-rich Texas, I love that phrase, uh, in the early 1990s. Um, would you describe that moment as a turning point or one of many turning points, and do you think that crisis of psyche is ongoing? <laughs> That's a funny question. Um, yeah, in the early early 90s, that was when, um, according to some studies, uh, Texas uh, became sort of an importer of electricity rather than an exporter, and this uh, uh, was evidently, you know, sort of a blow to Texas pride. For anyone who's spent time in the state, you know, Texas pride is is a big, big uh, thing. And so, you know, one, it, right, Ann Richards, you know, she did a lot of studies, kind of laid the ground for the development of the first commercial-scale wind farm in Texas in, in the mid-'90s. And so, you know, now the talking points in Texas really are, you know, uh, well, they're they're largely fracking now. There's a lot of focus on fracking, but when it's not all fracking all the time, it's uh, diversity of, of energy resources. And, you know, I mean, the psychological aspects of, of Texas are very interesting. I mean, Texas basically likes to be number one in stuff. What state doesn't, but mm-hmm. Texas, you know, has a particularly chest-beating, particular chest-beating abilities. And, you know, state loves it, but it's you know, number one in oil and now also number one in wind, although it's got a few second thoughts because of the, sort of, of the mandates and the kind of somewhat more left-leaning policy that made wind possible. We can go into that. Yeah, I can. Well, so I, I was going to ask something about Governor Rick Perry's former or stands that may not be as familiar to us who those of us who are familiar with this conservatism, um, who in the early 2000s was a vocal and generous supporter of wind power. So just talking about the cognitive dissonance between Texas as a conservative state, Texas as a liberal state, Texas with liberal policies in a conservative environment toward alternative energy, um, what are your thoughts on, on that? Is it a contradiction or something explained by what you've seen? Well, I think it's partly uh, explained by changing times. You know, when wind power really got going in Texas, it was before the Tea Party. Um, I don't think you can really repeat some of the policies right now. And, you know, what, what got wind power going are, you know, a mandate, a renewable energy mandate signed in 1999 by Governor George W. Bush right around the time that he was starting his run for president against Al Gore. Uh, also, in, in the mid-2000s, the state of Texas decided to spend billions of dollars building out transmission lines to windy sites, and those costs are, I'm like to say, quote, socialized among Texas ratepayers, meaning that every Texan is going to be paying for those power lines, which you know are about $7 billion now and reach a cost of you know, $300 for uh, roughly for every Texan. Um, I mean, that's a amount of money. And, you know, it's uh, every Texan is going to be paying for it. 
and you know also the federal tax credit really helped bring get going and and then you have the rise of the the Tea Party in uh, uh, maybe four four or so years ago and I think some of those policies you know, you know that made a conservative state even more conservative and so I think some of those policies certainly wouldn't be possible now if you started from <laughs> from scratch and indeed there have been some efforts to reduce incentives for wind that haven't been fully successful. Wind now has its, its own uh, kind of lobby. Folks in rural areas like it. And so it is it is sort of a funny a funny contradiction that I think is partly explained by changing times. Hmm. And there are some obvious connections between wind, water, oil, fracking, and natural gas. Um, but what are what are some connections that are not necessarily obvious, especially to those of us without expertise in the energy markets? I know that's a big question. But. Well, I think one interesting thing that I've seen is that the renewable energy people, meaning wind, meaning the solar photovoltaic panels, haven't focused as much as I would have thought on the idea that you know wind power and the panels don't use any water. I mean, water's a huge issue um, in the state of Texas, and I think you'll see that going forward, but that's a connection that a lot of people don't think about. I mean, this is emissions-free electricity. It's also uh, water-free electricity, and, and that is a bonus point. But yeah, sure, there are other, other funny confluences, like, you know, in um, uh, much earlier days, you had uh, sort of urban uh, wind turbines in occasional areas, you know, working to pump oil, you know, and uh, windmills, just as windmills normally pumped water, they thought, well, maybe we should try pumping oil. Um, I don't think that worked out particularly well, but right, all of these different kinds of energy uh, kind of coincide in, in various ways and really made Texas energy state and interested in all kinds of energy, which I think is the basic attitude that made wind power possible. Yeah. Well, where do you think wind policy is headed today, and what are some challenges that you see emerging? Well, within the state of Texas, they're still building out these lines that are going to be a huge boon to wind power. Those lines, uh, again, $7 million of lines are due to be finished by the end of this year, and that will mean that some of the windiest part of Texas uh, like the Panhandle uh, uh, boat area um, where T. Boone Pickens had wanted to build this wind farm uh, uh, will be more accessible to wind. And so I think you'll see some continued wind build out. Um, one person uh, told me expect maybe, you know, 20% or so more wind uh, uh, over the next couple of years. And, of course, you're helped by the uh, last-minute extension of a federal tax credit uh, that was due to expire end of last year and got renewed early this year. And so uh, there's more wind coming, but the wind industry does have to uh, potentially figure out how to deal with the either expiration or the ratcheting down of uh, their federal tax credit, depending on what Congress decides to do at the end of this year. And do you think wind has more potential for filling in gaps in the, the energy pie in Texas than, say, solar? Wind is a little tricky because the wind that's been put in in West Texas isn't necessarily very well matched 
to the needs of the power grid. The, you know, it's really, really hot in Texas. Breaking is like 100 degrees there now, and that means that air conditioners are on full blast in the afternoons. And so, but but that's also when the West Texas winds die down. And you know, as as they built out these wind farms, they've kind of realized that that that's a significant issue. Solar, of course, would be uh, much better matched to the needs of the, the power grid uh, because it's, you know, I mean, when it's hot, it's sunny, and solar panels are producing power. And so, you know, the trouble is solar is a little more expensive, and so they're still, yeah, I, I do think you'll see uh, solar growth, um, you know, how fast, I, I don't know, uh, in Texas, or how, I, I don't think it can grow quite as fast as wind, but it be wrong. Um, you know, on the Texas coast, uh, you do see, you have seen more wind farms going in in recent years, and that's important because the coastal winds uh, are much better matched to the power grid. And so I think there's a lot more attention to, you know, will will the uh, uh, type of power that I'm producing be well matched to the grid? Because you can also uh, make more money um, as an operator by uh you know, the real-time prices are much more aligned to the uh, – are, are much higher at the times when Texas demand, power demand is high. Mm-hmm. And talking a little bit about well, – it's certainly in discussions on water. Water rights are a big issue in Texas, and and the, the it's been ruled that – and reaffirmed recently that Texans own the groundwater under their property, right? And so as – Wondering if uh, it's an issue at all if uh, Texans own the wind over their property and whether that intersects at all with eminent domain issues building wind turbines. Huh, that's a that's an interesting question. I've actually never really heard it raised, and you know, I think probably some Texans would be like, "Here, take the wind off my property, <laughs> and you know, please have it. It's all yours." Because I mean, the winds are really just can be brutally powerful um, in some places and they kick up these these dust storms but you know I've really never heard that I you know the issues that I, I do hear are you know in Texas you build um, a lot closer to the property line than you might be able to in other states and you potentially impact uh, your your neighbors with these wind farms neighbors aren't aren't always happy and so there are certain uh, but Texas is kind of a low regulation State. And so that's just sort of how it is, and they're always, always concerned landowners nearby. But you know that's that's the way things are in Texas. Mm. And does Texas, as the the winner in some respects of the Great Wind Rush, have any responsibilities or mandate going forward to lead other states in wind policy? And have they lived up to their numerical superiority? Well, it's interesting. I have we end the book with a quote from a fellow, Jim Marston, uh, who uh, uh, has the Texas Office of the Environmental Defense Fund, and he says, you know, quote, if Texas can do it, hell, anyone can do it. <laughs> yeah, isn't and that think, the final quote of the book? Yeah, that's the final quote of the book. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great um, And his point was that, I mean, people would have thought that wind power would be kind of normal maybe coming out of, you know, Dippy dippy California, but if Texas, which is you know seen as this kind of 
money-centric, practical-minded, uh, unenvironmentalist state can, can do wind power, then it sets, sets an example for other states and kind of gives them confidence. And, and more than confidence, you know, the Texas wind rush essentially made, you know, it, it meant that one state was having a very large-scale demand for wind turbines, which um, uh, will change the economics of industry. And, you know, again, it just sort of uh, uh, shows, it shows the way it demonstrates uh, policies that work for wind, the renewable portfolio standard of, of Texas, the renewable energy mandate signed by Governor Bush and extended by Governor Perry uh, really worked. And that kind of, you know, other states can look, look at Texas and see what works and, and what didn't. But yeah, Texas is sort of a sort of a pioneer and they're still building. Well, that is an inspiring note to end on, I think. And I want to thank you, Kate, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. It's been fun.